Hello, welcome back. Today's sermon is titled, Receiving an Unshakable Kingdom. Everybody wants to know, why haven't you written a book? Something like that. Something like that is the reason. We are in the 18th uh, part of our study through Hebrews. Uh, There's today and two more, and we will finish. And so what I want you to understand is today is, uh, if you want to understand the, the driving force and vision, there's not a text in the scripture that more identifies what, what is driving me as a person who sees the word and sees God's kingdom in his word. This is, a, this is a text of kingdom theology. And I'm gonna talk to you about receiving an unshakable kingdom. 2003, many of you know, uh, I, I had the opportunity to meet Jack Taylor face to face in Pagosa Springs. When we met Jack, he was preaching on God's unshakable kingdom. I'll never forget that, how it laid hold of me and how I I knew that that was the vision that had been inside of me and the words that I'd been looking for. And he pointed me to E. Stanley Jones' uh, book called The Unshakable Kingdom and the Unchanging Person. By the way, next week we'll talk about that latter part. And, And so this is where I am today. I'm gonna show you a video I'm so happy for the Bible Project. I'm so happy for the work that's being done by them. Uh, such a coherent way of expressing biblical thoughts and to do it with images, so you're gonna see it. I have been concerned for a very long time that Christian theology sounded, like, sounded more like Greek philosophy, Platonism, then it sounds like Hebraic thinking. Nothing describes that more than the concept of heaven and earth, heaven and earth. Uh, By the way, the Bible contrasts heaven and earth far more than, I don't know that you can find a passage where it contrasts heaven and hell. It contrasts heaven and earth. Why, what does that mean? How can we get hold of that? And this little video is gonna show you that we went from the union of heaven and earth to the split. And the unshakable kingdom of God is the restoration of a union of heaven and earth so that there will be a, a renewed heavens and a renewed earth wherein is righteousness. Due to copyright laws, we had to cut this out of the video. If you would like to see the film, which Pastor Alan is referring to, Go to youtube.com and search Heaven and Earth, The Bible Project. Now back to the sermon. When I mess this sermon up, that's what I meant. (laughs) All right? I mean, the themes are everyone, everywhere in this. Okay, here's what we're coming to. In this text of scripture, we're gonna talk about, as we talk about God's uh, receiving the unshakable kingdom, we're gonna talk about two mountains. And the two mountains are two covenants. 
and they're contrasted in the Bible. I, I actually, this will put a drag on me to uh, repeat some of what I gave you last week, but that's where we were last week. I want to summarize uh, the two covenants by pulling up this text from, uh, from uh, 2 Corinthians 3. In 2, 3, 2 Corinthians 3 and in Galatians 4, as indicated on there, it's Paul's expression of two kingdoms. In, in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, where we are, it's the writer of Hebrews expressing two kingdoms. Uh, once again, I'm obsessed with God's kingdom. Papa Jack is not here to drive us into that obsession, so his sons are here to do that. And I'm gonna drive people the rest of my life. Oh, you think, yeah, yes, I'm giving up lead pastor, but I'm loud. <laughs> and, God, and God is not finished with me yet. So I'm gonna keep pressing this thing, this thing of a glorious gospel. I am convinced that we are missing the gospel over and over. I am convinced that history is the record of the failure of the church to manifest God's kingdom in the world. And God says, okay, we're gonna do it again. Okay, we're gonna do it again. Okay, we're gonna do it again. And we are advancing. I wanna tell you this. I'm also convinced that for the most part, this last uh, 14 or 15 months of going through all that we've gone through has revealed more about our failure to perceive the kingdom than any time that I can remember um, where I was real conscious myself enough to make the analysis. In other words, I'm saying the, uh, the Christian expression of response, both left and right, was, was missed the kingdom. Let's get our eyes open this morning. Now you say, well, you've offended me. Now I can't listen to you. That's all right. I've done it before. <laughs> Second Corinthians three, listen to this. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, the spirit gives life. The two mountains that I'm gonna give you are Sinai where the letter was given and Zion, where the Spirit was poured out. Where, where the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. The two kingdoms that we're talking about is a, is a kingdom uh, that <laughs> religiously, religiously Zion means the, the expression of, of kingdom by external constraint. Whereas Zion is kingdom by in, internal transformation. This is where people always say they miss the kingdom because the kingdom was a spiritual kingdom rather than a political or, or a historical kingdom. And I say, no, 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 no. That's an inadequate expression. They missed it because the kingdom was a kingdom in the spirit. When people hear the word a spiritual kingdom, they are sometimes tempted to think of something that's not real. And I think it's an inadequate expression. The kingdom that we are in is a kingdom in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit. 
When you are in the new covenant, you're in the spirit. When you're in the old covenant, you're in the letter. So I give you this. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, because he talked about the veiled face of Moses, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So what's going on? We're being transformed. I love what Colleen said, because she took us to David who constantly made a mess of things and I had, I had not quite seen that wonderful insight she gave. Did you hear it? Where he boldly went before the throne of grace, even before there was a text that said boldly go before the throne of grace. He just took his messed up self and cried out to God. And this is a time for the people of God to take our messed up selves back to the throne of God and say, sort us out. And I'm gonna stress with you and press you on a kingdom in the Holy Spirit, a kingdom that is a kingdom that can be translocal, a kingdom that can be global, a kingdom that is, is fully inclusive of whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. All right, so let's go for it. Here we are in Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come. The writer of Hebrews is talking to a group of people who have been in the letter of the law. He's gone over that letter of the law with them. He's talked to them about sacrifice, about temple, about priesthood. He's talked to them about Moses. He's talked to them about all of the things that were manifested in the old covenant. And now he sums it up by bringing them to Sinai. And Sinai was the place where the covenant that they had with God was being renewed. And it was the place where the people encountered the voice of God. I've talked about it a lot of times. In this context, it's beautiful because in the book of Hebrews, it says God who at many times and in many ways spoke to us by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed as the heir of all things. Which by the way is where I could have uh, tied the last text. Are you following me? If, if, you're, if you're new, um, I'm sorry. This is not kindergarten church. <laughs> I'll say it one more time before I finish. My, my old teacher that I, that I used to love uh, told me about a theologian who was a pastor and his people said, you're preaching over our heads. And he said, stand up. For you, Hebrews, you people have not come to what may be touched and uh, may be touched there was not talking about you have permission to touch. It was talking about you might accidentally touch it. May be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Remember they said, Moses, tell him to stop that for they could not endure the order that was given. If even one beast touches the mountain, he shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So Sinai was the place where God brought his people, where he would speak to them all. Listen to me as I'm talking about speaking. 
The Christian life is lived by hearing the voice of God. Oh, that God's people would test the spirits a little more. We will. We're going to learn. We're going to, you know, we're going to fall and stub our toes and fall down and get up like old Abraham. We're going to fall until, until he gets us home. That's where it's going to go. And, and the writer of Hebrews, he's really concerned because the people that he's ministering to are considering tethering themselves to the old covenant. Now he's telling them, well, that's a good place if you want to be there, but you need to know that your forefathers, they didn't want to be there because it was terrifying, dreadful, and threatening. And he says, and he says to them, you have not come. Meaning these people he's writing to had embraced a narrative of something and he says, and this is not the one you've embraced. And I'm telling you, I'm looking at culture today and I'm saying to my Christian friends, if you are listening to ideologies, you are not listening to the voice of God. And I can name them very plainly. And they are, they are, they are not of one kind only. We are being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. I'm going to plead for plead you. I'm at the end of my pastoral leadership with you, and I'm pleading for you to find the kingdom. And I'm pleading for you to not unite it with narratives that are of this world or of the body politic. I'm pleading with you to be able to see and understand why something is less than the kingdom, even though it has hints and flavors that make me think this might be the kingdom. No. I want you to know something. There was real boots on the ground trouble going on. These Hebrew people, if ever there was a time for them to tether themselves to their national covenant, it was then because their nation was about to be destroyed. All of the writers of the New Testament knew that a calamity was coming. They all knew it, Jesus had said it, they all talk about it. The writer of Hebrews has actually said to them, these things that you are tethered to, they are obsolete and they are passing away. Yes, I've said it a bunch of times, I want you to get it. I think this writer understood Old covenant Israel was about to be no more. And if there's anything that's more compelling than home and family, I don't know it. But kingdom calls us to an allegiance that is greater than nation, greater than tribe, greater than kindred, even greater than blood. He is calling us to an allegiance that is in the Holy Spirit, an allegiance that tethers us to our brothers and sisters who are in the Spirit in every place and calls us to call the world to come to Him who will pour His breath into their bodies and give them life. 
You have not come to Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion was established when David took the Ark of the Covenant up that hill. He conquered the Jebusite stronghold in what we know as Jerusalem. And he, and he came up a hill and he established the tabernacle. What's that? That's where the presence of God was. That's where heaven and earth met. He established it on Mount Zion. Then after David's time, Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah, just adjacent to it. And Zion came to encompass that whole region. And so the, the concept of Mount Zion was a, a, an actual specific place, not in the wilderness Sinai, but in Jerusalem. Now, immediately your thought then gets tethered to a new geography. God's not trying to do that. Malcolm Smith is one that gave me a teaching on Mount Zion and showed me according to the scripture that Mount Zion is the spiritual reality of the manifest presence of God in the midst of his people. It's not a location. It's a, it's a reality. It's a shared encounter. It's face-to-faceness with God. You have come to Mount Zion. What happens to Mount Zion? The law is read? No, the Spirit is poured out. They built a temple. It never had the glory of God in it. Even the rabbis knew it. And then on the day of Pentecost, God filled the temple with his glory. And they spoke with new tongues. And the people said, what's going on here? And the, and the man of God, Peter, who cowered just before, gets up now and tells them, this is that which the prophet Joel spoke of. And the glory of God was being returned to the people of God. And from that moment on, temple no longer was the edifice wherein they gathered. Temple was the people of God gathered, worshiping and praising him. Zion this morning was right here. You have come to Mount Zion. You don't have to make a pilgrimage. Christians do not have temples and places over the earth that we have to go and get there because we have to be in that space. No, wherever we place our foot is holy ground and people who are gathered together in him and in his love are filled with his Holy Spirit and with his holy presence and manifest his glory. And this means that love is manifested. This means that forgiveness is manifested. This means that the glorious gospel of grace and peace is manifested. Oh, there was nothing more beautiful yesterday than when a young man whose wife had had her sister horribly killed by an impaired driver when he stood at this place and took the microphone and prayed for that man and his family and ask that the mercies of God would be poured out on them. And I said, that's the kingdom. The kingdom has come here also. I'm sorry, I'm a little stirred up. I'm a lot stirred up and I'm I'm squeezed. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Do you remember? Do you remember? You do that they were looking for a city. 
Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. And then the writer of Hebrews said, well, that's because he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Abraham was looking was, where's God? I want to find God. He was searching for him. Now this guy dares to say to them, you have already come there. To what? This is the passage. This was the moment. This was what got me. Years ago, I'm reading this. You've already come to the heavenly Jerusalem. But wait a minute. Isn't the heavenly Jerusalem something that comes down in the end times? Isn't that an eschatological event, a thing that happens in the last days? But the Bible itself says to a group of people, you've already come there. And I begin to tell people, you should, you should want to be with me because I walk on streets of gold. And I began to realize what is called, realize, realized eschatology, which is to say the thing you thought was future is present. And in the spirit, you have it here and now. It is your inheritance. It is your identity. It's who you are. You have already come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Can you imagine that he's saying to them, you're gonna leave heaven? Now think about it. In the realities of their life, flesh and blood situation, their, their connectedness in this world was under threat in every way. And they're tempted to go home to what they called home. And he said, nope, there's a new home and you're already in it. And you'll have to have eyes to see it. You'll have to be able to perceive it. And so you and I have already come there to the heavenly Jerusalem to an innum to, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Do you know what that is? That's the great assembly of heaven. That's the heavenly council. You read about it in the Bible. You've already come. You're already there. You've already come to Jerusalem where the heavenly council meets. What does the heavenly council do? Partners with God in reigning over heaven and earth. You've already come there. How is it manifested? By the outpoured life and blood of lovers of Christ who will not sell their souls, who will not sell their hearts, who will not sell their allegiances, who will love those that hate them, who will bless those that curse them, who will pray for those who despitefully use them. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to the assembly of the firstborn. Hallelujah. The assembly of the firstborn. I'm tempted to start a new denomination. The assembly of the firstborn. Don't miss the firstborn. Listen, the firstborn of creation was Adam. And then the Bible says, in Adam all died. The firstborn of new creation, and, the, and Paul, when he writes Colossians, he tells them, is Jesus Christ. He's the firstborn of new creation reality. Born out of what? Out of death. Born out of the death that was brought on by Adam's sin. As in Adam all died, so in Christ shall all be made alive. In Christ shall all be made alive. And he's the firstborn. You know what that means? He's gonna have some brothers and sisters. 
You and I are in the assembly of the firstborn. You know what happens to you when you're in Christ? You get a brand new status. You're now firstborn. You know how in the old covenant, firstborn is a rivaled piece of giftedness. It's a place that you want to grab for. It's what Jacob is grabbing. And in the kingdom of God, firstborn is what he gives to all his children so that all the children say, I must be his favorite. Look at me. This is the kingdom of God who are, listen, you understand? He's talking to them and they're like, when he's done with them, they got nowhere to run. You have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to the judge of all. Oh, let me tell you about coming to the judge of all. In the Bible, judgment is what happened on the cross when God in Christ judged sin once and for all. In the Bible, the judgment against sin happened. And no, don't get me wrong. I understand it's appointed to man once to die and after that, the judgment. I understand that. But you know what the judge of all does? He sets everything right. You know what you want in your life? You want to stand before a judge who will make things right. Judge in the Bible has a connotation of condemnation, but the Bible says in Christ, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. In Christ, there is reconciliation, redemption, and new creation. You've come to the judge of all. Just think of it. You've come to the one who's gonna sort you out. You've come to the one who's gonna, who's gonna make it right. Where does God begin? How does God change the world? Changes me. God wants you to do something. He said, yeah, I'm gonna start with you. I'm gonna set you to right. Righteousness is to come to the judge of all and have him set you right. You've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Because see, you see, when you've been before the righteous judge and he has set you right, you are now completed. You have been made perfect in the beloved. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. In other words, the two mountains, you haven't come to Moses who had fading glory. You've come to Jesus in whom is glory to glory. You've come to Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Most of us join ourselves to human allegiances that judge the world because we presume that by being in this allegiance, we shall be in the right and those who are in the wrong shall be judged. But the gospel says, no, you come to the judge of all who makes us righteous and to the mediator of a new covenant so that this mediator can hang on a cross and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Even as he experiences the God forsakenness of the human race and makes an end to it once and for all, 
You have heard my cry. It is finished. Prepare yourselves for a covenant meal. Let us receive the communion before I finish this message. Or while I'm finishing it, I should say. This, this cup, this bread and this cup, this is our renewal. This is our renewing ourselves in the new covenant. And so we're here today again. And, and you know what? We're not here because we're good. We're here because we're his. The Corinthians were not were not rebuked for being unworthy to come to the Lord's Supper. They were rebuked for being unworthy in the manner in which they celebrated the supper. Because no one is worthy to come here. We're just welcome. And so we've been welcomed to eat his flesh. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. The Bible says, by his stripes, we are healed. The Bible says, he hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, that we might be made righteous in him. This is the body of Christ, and it's given for you. He is the mediator of a new covenant. Every covenant in the Old Testament. Um, well, the sacrifices and the covenants in the Old Testament were fulfilled in blood. The blood was the outpoured life. You can remember on Sinai, he sprinkled them with blood, the blood of sacrifices. And the Bible says we too are sprinkled with blood. And listen to what it says. It says we're sprinkled with blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. God said to Cain, the voice of Abel's blood is speaking to me from the ground. Some people say to me, that blood was calling for vengeance. No, no, for justice. But the cross speaks a better word, a word of mercy, a word of mercy. And this is why God, when he said he put a mark on Cain, it was his mercy. And Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the cup, and when he had blessed it, he gave thanks and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. I'm almost done, but not quite. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Thank you, Jesus. You haven't come to Moses, you've come to Jesus. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it. The writer, he says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. I love Protestantism. I love my Bible. Anyone who knows me knows I love my Bible. But I have always loved the God who speaks to us. 
He is revealed in the word and he is only really magnificently revealed in the word. But for many of us and myself included, he revealed himself in the voice that kept calling, Alan, Alan, Alan. And I kept hearing him saying, what do you want and where are you? See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking to you. The writer is pleading with these people. He's saying, he's speaking to you. Do not refuse him. He started this epistle by saying, he spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Now he's speaking to you by his son. He tells us about the son here who is the mediator of a new covenant. And he said, Don't, do, do not refuse him who is speaking to you. This is the call to not quench the Holy Spirit. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Listen to this promise. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. I've said this before. The little video gave, it a, gave you a piece of it. Remember when they said where heaven and earth meet and they showed you the tabernacle and the temple. And they said to you that everyone knew that's where the presence of God was. Where the presence of God is manifested is where heaven and earth meet. He says, I'm going to shake not only the earth, but the heavens. I believe with all my heart that that was the writer of Hebrews foreseeing the shaking one more time of the temple. Jesus had prophesied the fall of the temple. He had prophesied his own body as a temple that would fall and rise again in three days. They put him to death because he said he would destroy the temple and raise it up again in three days. They said he was a blasphemer. And then he had told them that their actual mortar and stone building was coming down. This was a guarantee. Yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. It is in shaking, it's the shaking of war that we shake the earth. It is the, it is the destruction of the temple that was the shaking of heaven and earth. Why was he doing it? Because the removal of that manifestation was necessary because of the greater thing that God was doing in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. This is the glory of the latter house. That quote is taken from Haggai, where Haggai was prophesying, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you. When I came out of Egypt, look what it says, my spirit remains in your midst. That's the presence. Don't be afraid. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. Listen, oh, listen. And the treasure of all the nations shall come in. This is Haggai seeing ahead of time the destruction of the old for the incoming of the new. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, the, the second temple was never filled with glory, but the latter house is gonna be filled with glory. The glory of my presence, the glory of me, the silver's mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. But the latter glory, it's gonna be greater than silver and gold. 
The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Wow, indeed. We finish here. This phrase, writes the writer, yet once more. By the way, it doesn't mean the shaking is finished. It means there's another shaking. Yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Now listen to what he says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Because you see, nations Rise and fall, but the kingdom of God is forever. Do not put your trust in horses and chariots, armies. Do not put your trust in the arm of flesh. Do not put your trust in the body politic. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Into that kingdom, said the prophet Haggai, all the nations will come. It's not bound by national boundaries. It's not identified by racial identity. It's not a group of people over against other people. It's all the tribes and nations and kingdoms of this world, and it cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Do you remember the fire that Moses turned to look at that burned on the bush, but the bush was not consumed. The writer of Hebrews says, well, our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? That means one more, one more image of the removal of all things so that only what cannot be shaken will remain. This last year has revealed so much how shakable we have become even as the people of God, as the body of Christ. But God has said, no, I'm gonna have a people who cannot be shaken. And so we're gonna go through the prevarications of thinking he is here, he's in the thunder, he's in the lightning, but he's not there. His presence is in his spirit that he has put in you. You are the temple of the living God. Thank you for tuning in today. Come on back next week to listen in. God bless you. Goodbye.